Good morning, friends. Good to see you here. So you've probably guessed what the subject matter is of the sermon. Uh, we like to prepare you for uh, what you're about to hear. Um, not just to prepare you, but to uh, kind of uh, till the soil of your soul so that the Holy Spirit will have his way in your heart um, as the word is preached to you. Uh, this is the first Sunday of the new year, and uh, I'm not sure about you, but I don't think I'm ready for another new year. But here we are anyways, and it seems like this happens every year. Uh, you get to the new year, and it's like, what happened? <laughs> Where did the last year go? And I can't believe it's the year that we are currently in. Last year, on this Sunday, I preached a sermon by Octavius Winslow from Psalm 31:15. if you remember. My times are in his hands, is what the verse says. Uh, and of course, that verse speaks of God's providence and resting in his providence and not allowing fear to creep in uh, to our lives as we experience his providence. And today I'm going to preach to you um, outside of the Gospel of Mark uh, to kind of help you establish some footing for this coming year and maybe uh, give you some, some perspective from the past year. And this sermon that I'm going to preach to you is taken from a book written by Thomas Boston, who was another Puritan, and the book he wrote was called The Crook in the Lot. Not the, the crooks that go to jail, but the bends and twists in the lot that or your circumstances that you experience, the crook in the lot. He wrote about the importance of understanding and navigating difficult trials. And it's an excellent work. And in fact, there's a few of us that are gathering on Saturday mornings to read through it and discuss it. But uh, it's very similar to Winslow's sermon that I preached last year. And I, I wanted to just tell you why I'm going to preach another Puritan sermon on suffering and dealing with it. Uh, the first is because we all need to deepen our understanding of how God works through hardships in our lives. We're not real clear on that, it seems. Secondly, because many of us have recently gone or, or are presently going through some deep water. And as your pastor, I want to help you through those hard times. And thirdly, because the author, Thomas Boston, is a Puritan, is why I'm preaching this sermon today from his book. He's a Puritan, and Puritans generally have a godly and edifying perspective on any subject. Choose one, they'll have a godly perspective on it. If you're going through something, and you can find a Puritan author who's addressed it, you'll be a long ways towards resolving your issue. Fourthly, I'm preaching this Puritan sermon on suffering because our contemporary perspectives on suffering and hardships aren't very helpful. What we hear every day uh, really aren't the way to think about our circumstances. And fourthly, because I want to whet your appetite for good reading, I want you to pick up the books and read uh, the books that fill our bookshelves out there. We have the Puritan Library out there, two copies of the Puritan Library on our bookshelves, uh, with the intent that you'll pick one up, check it out, read it, and bring it back, 
or keep it, um, but pick up good books and read them. It's another reason I'm, I'm preaching to you today. Outside the context of our series in the Gospel of Mark. So I hope you have your Bible open to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. That's where we're going to be today. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you in the pew, I think. And I want to review some of the things you just heard read to you um, from this great chapter, from this great book. Solomon writes that things that we would prefer in life aren't necessarily the better choice to their counterpart. Did you notice that? He says stuff like this, uh, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Really? He continues, sorrow is better than laughter, verse 3. Uh, verse 5, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of, a wise, of the wise than hear the song of fools. It's better to hear a rebuke than a song. Um, verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Now that explains to you why I'd rather do a funeral than a wedding. <laughs> it's better, it's better in many ways. He doesn't explain it real well here, but he, he, he states it. And then he says this, which offends all of us over 40. Um, why were the former days better than these? Remember the good old days? You know, we old people like to talk about. He says that's not very smart to talk about. <laughs> so I think I'm just going to go back to Mark's gospel here <laughs> this morning. <laughs> Seriously, the day of death is better than day of birth. Sorrow is better than laughter. Come on. Sounds like a depressed guy trying to make sense of his disappointing life, doesn't it? But if you would like to dig deeper into what the wisest man to ever live wrote here in this amazing book, this particularly amazing chapter, Ecclesiastes 7, and if you want to make sense of the trials you're going through or have gone through or will go through, guaranteed, um, you may want to pay, pay attention this morning. If you want to learn how to actually navigate these inevitable challenges that you will face, if, if you want to benefit from these things, then listen this morning. Or better yet, go buy the book and read it. You can get it on Amazon for six bucks. A Crook in the Lot by Thomas Boston. Now, you have to be patient. The book itself is a crook in the lot. Um, it's a little, a little more challenging uh, Puritan writing than your typical Puritan. Of course, uh, Puritans are writing in, in, the, in the form of Old English mostly, but you can get a, a contemporary version, I think, and it'll be helpful to you. But Solomon here uh, writes some very interesting concepts that are helpful to us, to every generation, that has ever read them. In verse 13 of Ecclesiastes 7, he says this, in case you're not interested in sitting through a sermon like this or reading a book like that or even reading this chapter in Ecclesiastes, he says this in verse 13, consider the work of God. It's a, it's a downright command. 
Think about what God is doing in your life. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Think about what God is doing when you're going through hard times is the intent of the verse. And so this morning, I want us together to consider what God's doing in our lives. How are we going to think about the challenges that we're going to face? How do we think about the challenges we've gone through? I want to ask you to walk with me, to consider with me for the next few minutes and pray that the Holy Spirit will impress on your mind some insights that will give you great help and encouragement when you find yourselves neck deep in stuff that you just can't handle on your own. So the big idea that we must begin with here is where Solomon takes us, and that is that trying times that we face are from the hand of God. Sounds like Winslow, doesn't it? Octavius Winslow. Our times are in his hands. And of course, that is a direct quote from Psalm 3115. So it sounds like Winslow, but it also sounds like David, <laughs> the author of the psalm. So first of all, if in fact the trying times that we face or have faced are from the hand of God, we've got to recognize that crooked paths, these trying times, are common to all of us. That's the first point in your outline. Crooked paths or trying times are common to everyone. Everyone experiences difficulty. And all of our difficulties, and I'll, I'll defend this statement here in a moment, all of our difficulties come directly from the hand of God. In case you think it's just bad luck. So whether you're a saint or a rebel, you're going to face crooked paths in life. No one is exempt. And of course, this points again in a roundabout way to the providence of God in all of our lives. So whether you are experiencing smooth sailing or stormy seas, God's providence, we must understand, based on what Solomon has said, and by the way, it's sprinkled all over Scripture, is from the controlling providence of God in all of life. Each person's God-ordained path is designed specifically to accomplish certain things, like the glory of God, to start with. Secondly, our good. These two things, in all of life's challenges, are designed by God to accomplish. As we sang just a moment ago, as treasures of the darkness grow. Did you think about that phrase that you sang? As treasures of the darkness grow. That assumes you agree with Solomon. <laughs> you actually believe that the darkness you experience are treasures given to you from God. And this, this wealth of treasure that's developing in each of our lives is from the hand of a wise and loving God. It's when our paths become crooked and difficult that we must be particularly careful 
to pursue this godly perspective. It's dangerous not to. If it's smooth sailing for you right now, or, or whether you're in the thick of it, this particular advice from Solomon is very valuable. And I hope to uh, help you see that here before the end of our time together. But to begin with, why is it so important that we are particularly vigilant and observant during our times of trial? Why is it important that we think correctly about the crooks in our lot, about our circumstances, the twists and turns that we didn't expect, the hardships, the pain? Why is it important that we think about these things as we should? There's many reasons that Thomas Boston lays out, but one that he says at the beginning of his book is that it is during the challenging times of our lives that we are most susceptible to temptation. It's during the hardship, friends, that you are at your weakest. To quote him, this is what Boston says, there is nothing that gives temptation greater access than the crook in the lot. Nothing more apt to occasion out-of-the-way steps is when you're facing it, when you're facing the whirlwind. You see, our natural response to crooked paths is to compare our circumstances with the circumstances of others. You ever find yourself doing that? <laughs> what is going on with my life, God? Look, look at Bob. I mean, I'm better than Bob. Everybody can see that. His life is seamless, smooth sailing. And so we begin to question the fairness of God, the love of God, the wisdom of God, the sovereign providence of God. This is, of course, what Job struggled with. If you remember his story, he, he didn't understand why God would do such things to such a wonderful person as himself. Remember that conversation, how it ended? It's an awesome ending to that book, by the way. God asked Job, uh, I don't recall seeing you around when I was laying the foundations of the earth. Were you there, Job? I can't remember. Remind me if I'm wrong here, but I don't remember seeing you when I created the deeps, when I put the stars in place. Where were you, Job? I can't remember. It's prideful of us to think that our lot somehow has escaped the view of God and he's made some kind of mistake here in presenting you with the path he's given. And so we look at each other's lives from the outside, assuming that everyone else's life is preferable to our own. Their path seems always straight. They never have any trials, but if the premise is true that Crooked paths are common to everyone, then that's a wrong way of looking at trials, isn't it? Everyone's got trials. Everybody in this room has got crooks in their lot. When we look at each other's lives, we don't see the details, and it's in the details where crooked paths reside. It's where they hide. We can't see what lies under the surface of each other's lives. Boston basically said, your crooked path isn't as crooked as you think, and your neighbor's path isn't as straight as it seems. There's no free sailing for anybody, I guess we could say. 
not even the wealthy who seemingly can control their circumstances. We never hear of wealthy people problems, do we? <laughs> Unless you read the news. Everyone's life has crooked paths. In fact, Boston wrote, here's a quote, no lot out of heaven is without a crook. There's no life ever lived that hasn't had challenging circumstances. So don't think that you're unique or especially beaten down because of your circumstances. So the first thing that we need to understand as we look at the text is to understand the whole point behind crooks, behind hardships, to recognize crooked paths, to understand crooked paths, if you will. And knowing the scriptures, as we, you know, do here, Romans 5.12 tells us that sin is the origin of these crooked paths that we face. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. If there's a crook in our path that everybody abhors, it's death. And that came from sin, according to Paul here in Romans 5. And as we wander through life, we, on occasion, uh, are kind of jolted to attention by these difficulties, these hard times. Adversity seems to get our attention that other things don't. And of course, these things God uses to accomplish his purposes in us. He brings us these hard times not to, to uh, make things difficult for us and watch us squirm, which is some of our view of God. No, not at all. He, he is out to accomplish certain things in your life and in mine. And the way you're wired, it takes place when you go through hardship. When you're running along smooth sailing and all of a sudden you hit a turn. <laughs> and you go flying off the turn and hit the bank. So, <clears throat> Boston wanted us to consider the work of God, think about how God is doing these things by looking at two different ways that crooked paths show up in our lives. The first is this, a difficult one-time experience that leaves a lasting mark. A difficult one-time experience that leaves a lasting mark. If I gave you 30 seconds, you could come up with the details and let me know, couldn't you? You could. There was, in fact, in your life, if you've lived more than a few years, a difficult one-time experience that has left lasting marks on you. We see examples of this in Scripture. One is that when Jacob wrestled with God at the Jabbok River, I would say that was a difficult one-time experience. And what was the lasting mark on him? It was a physical one. Remember, he limped the rest of his life. God touched him on his hip. Your one-time experience may not leave a physical mark, but it will leave a mark. It will influence how you think, how you live, how you relate to others. 
Usually you don't have to live too long to have this experience, this one-time mark-leaving experience. Um, that painful experience may have taken place in your family of origin, may have taken place in a workplace, at school, or in an important relationship, in your health, or some financial experience. Whatever it was, the mark remains, doesn't it? It influences how you think. It affects you. It affects how you relate to the people around you in this room. It affects how you relate to God. Secondly, Boston suggests that there's not only crooks that come in these one-time uh, painful experiences, but they come in series of events that all leave lasting marks. Sometimes they're related, sometimes they're not. But instead of a one-time event or a one-time experience, there's these consecutive experiences that may or may not be related to one another that leave marks. And the story of Job is a classic example of that, isn't it? As soon as the first bearer of bad news left the room, another one arrived announcing another event that was crushing to him. Hey, uh, all your sheep were stolen. Oh yeah, and by the way, the next guy behind me has worse news. Your house fell down. Next guy, oh, by, it's worse than that. Your kids were in your house when it fell down. They're all dead. That's a series of crushing experiences that affected Job the rest of his life. Joseph's story is similar to that, isn't it? He went from being sold into slavery by his brothers, and that wasn't the first negative event, but that was the biggest one we can remember. He went from being sold into slavery by his own brothers to being falsely accused by his owner's wife. Then he was sent to prison for two years for something he didn't do. A series of events that left lasting marks. Not just a one-time event, a series of events. You've probably had both of these, haven't you? One-time event, unrelated to anything else, and then a series of events that seem to hit you like a train, car after car after car hitting you. It's like the experience of the Argentine rugby team uh, in the story Alive, and the true story, by the way, that their plane crashed in the Andes Mountains on the way to a rugby game, and they survived on the side of this hill for months. Um, and to the point where they realized that they, the search was over. And they sent two guys out, two of the only remaining healthy ones that were barely healthy, uh, to, to try to hike out of the Andes Mountains. And, and the story reveals uh, amazing things, you know, <laughs> that took place in, in that story. But the, the, the point I want to make with you is this series of events that that was just like these guys. They climbed to the top of the first mountain and just about completely out of energy and just about ready to go to sleep. They look and they see nothing but mountain ranges in front of them. That's kind of like these series of events in your life where you barely made it through the first one and when you get to the top thinking, oh, I'm through this, all you see is a mountain range of negative things coming at you. A challenging reality and danger of facing these kind of trials and experiences 
is that they have the potential to undo some people. We all know people who've gone through things, who have claimed to know God and follow Christ, that have been undone by negative experiences. And so these trials and things we face have the potential to undo some of us, at least for a time. And I just want to remind you that God is overseeing our trials to accomplish His purposes, and He will always accomplish His purposes. But there are many who, when faced with difficulty, run away from God and His church. We've seen it here. The way the psalmist of Psalm 73 navigated his trying times was not to run away from God, but to run to God. That was the the encouragement in that psalm, Psalm 73. The author was Asaph, and he did the right thing by running to God instead of away from Him. Our circumstances sometimes tempt us to run the opposite direction, doesn't it? When you're going through difficulty, going through hardship, you feel like isolating yourself, like hunkering down, pulling the covers over your head, and crawling deeper into the cave. But listen to how the psalmist of Psalm 73, Asaph, handled his plight. Psalm 73, 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, this problem, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Now listen, until I went into the sanctuary of God, until I met with God, until I was in His presence, then I discerned their end. Then I discovered the point. It was in the presence of God that I discovered the point of my trials. Not running away from Him, not running away from His people, but running to Him, running to them. It was in the sanctuary where God revealed Himself and revealed the purposes of His challenging circumstances. It's lethal to follow the instinct to run away. And so we get back to verse 13 where Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7 says to consider your crooked paths. Consider what God's doing here. You're all going to face sorrow. You're all going to hear rebukes. You're all going to see death. You're all going to mourn. So think about these things. And not just superficially. Not just during the sermon. Boston is very helpful here to help us to get to a God-honoring and joyful place in our hardships. Each of us need this. So I want to help you think about how God uses hardship here in this next section of our sermon. Number one, our crooked paths are never crooked from God's perspective. Are they? (laughs) He planned them exactly as they are. It's not crooked to him. It's straight as an arrow. 
The only people who perceive the crookedness of the matter is you and me. Boston, quoting, This is not, in anyone's lot, any such thing as a crook. There is not, rather. There is not, in anyone's lot, any such thing as a crook in respect to the will and purposes of God. <laughs> He's not adjusting to the problems you're facing. He's bringing them to accomplish his purposes. That you will understand life, that you will understand yourself, that you'll understand him. Friends, this is really good news, that there is no crook in our lot from God's perspective. When I was a kid growing up in Ecuador, Quito, Ecuador, uh, the, the fences that were between property lines were made of mud. And so they would put uh, forms down, you know, however high you wanted your fence uh, to separate you from your neighbor, and they just fill it with mud, and then when it dried, they take it away and you got yourself a fence. That's how they made their fences. And so we, that was our fence on our property line. Um, and we as kids used to go out into that mud wall and carve a, a groove um, with different uh, gaps and lifts and drops so that we could put a marble in it and watch this marble roll down the thing that we designed to perfection and hop over gaps, go up a small grade, and then drop into a hole and circle down and drop into a cup at the bottom. And this would take hours of our day. And uh, what glorious things it was to be sovereign over a marble roll. Exactly what God does in your life. The marble is flying through this thing and, oh no, here comes a gap. Oh no, look at this drop. Oh, I'm not going to make it up that incline. When all along, this is exactly God's design. Getting us to our conclusion, to his conclusion, would be a better way to say it. So whatever you may be going through originated from the depths of infinite wisdom before time began, and that hardship will only do the bidding of this loving God. The crook in your path cannot branch out on its own and do greater havoc than God has designed it to do. No, it only does the bidding of a loving God. It is completely dependent on God's sovereign control. A verse that you may read and pass by, but shouldn't, is Ephesians 1.11, that said, God works all things, every crook, every twist, every turn, every hardship of your life, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything. You're cold. You're covid your raise, your dismissal, everything. Boston says this, concluding this particular section, wherefore, the greatest crook of the lot on earth is straight in heaven. <laughs> Isn't that good to know? 
Amen indeed. So the only place where the path is crooked or difficult is in our viewpoint. Never God's. The next thing I want to draw your attention to is this. This is under considering our crooked paths, verse 13. The first is our crooked paths are never crooked from God's perspective. The second point is this, because our crook or our hardship is painful, we can focus too much on the circumstance instead of the purpose behind the circumstance. Right? It's like when you have a toothache or a hangnail. That's all you can think about. Ah, the beautiful sunset. Yeah, but oh my, you know. You, you, can, you can focus on the pain so much you miss the beauty of the day. You, you miss the glory of a relationship because of a toothache or a hangnail. So the encouragement here is, is to look past the painful circumstances by faith, as hard as that is, and look for the beauty God is creating by the use of that hardship. The Apostle Paul gives us a good illustration of this in 2 Corinthians 12.10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness. Now follow these things. I'm content with weakness, with insults, with hardship. Paul was content with things. Why? Persecution and calamities. Why? For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I'm going through all these hard and difficult things, God is there shoring me up. I'm experiencing his strength. That's how you look past the calamity, the hardship, the persecution, is keeping an eye on the objective. Thirdly, crooked paths wound us in weakness. They wound us in weakness. What does that mean? Well, of course, crooked paths are never enjoyable. We wouldn't call them crooked. They're, they're never something we look forward to or plan for ourselves. I think I'm going to go out and break my leg today. No, that's not, kind of, that's not how we approach things. They always hit us where we are most vulnerable, where we are most tender. You remember in Psalm 4 that David complained of his heartache to God, and he said it was unbearable because it came from a close friend. It wounded him deeply because of the offense hit him where he was most tender in a relationship with a person he trusted with all of his heart. He goes, I could have put up with this. It would have come from an enemy, but it came from you, a close friend. What in the world? And that's how it always is, isn't it? In all of our circumstances that are negative, it hits us where it hurts. <laughs> and we see examples of this in the Bible. Jacob's first wife, Leah, evidently was an unattractive woman. That's what the Bible says. I'm not just saying something off the cup here. That's what the Bible says. She was an unattractive woman, but she could have kids. And her sister was a knockout, beautiful Rachel. And you know what? She couldn't have kids. It hit her where it hurt. Paul's life was similar, balanced between an amazing, great intellect and a weak body. A thorn in the flesh, he called it. 
Timothy, Paul's primary disciple, was evidently a great leader, but he was always sick. Always sick. We see other examples in human history. C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, called the Prince of Preachers because he was brilliant and renowned for his preaching. But he struggled mightily with depression. He could hardly get through the week. William Cooper, we sing many of his songs in this church, was suicidal. Literally. So the, the things that God brings our way is these crooks never hit us where we're strong. <laughs> it's always where we're tender and weak. So be attentive. <laughs> Think about, consider these things. Consider how God is working. Many of us are burdened by crooks in our paths, um, and these crooks many times come in our relationships with people. By nature, human relationships are designed to be a source of strength, a source of encouragement. Then they produce our greatest heartache because our hearts are tender towards people, which is what David was complaining about in Psalm 4. God often gets our attention and produces our sanctification through trying relationships, doesn't he? God knows exactly how to get your attention, which is why your circumstances are different than the person you're sitting next to. To accomplish his purposes in both of your lives. Now let's move to the second point, crooked paths are of God's making. I've been saying this all along, but I want to focus specifically on it to answer some questions that may be lingering in your mind about how this could be so. How could a loving God a God full of mercy and grace, allow or even plan, orchestrate this kind of stuff in our lives. And this is the challenge, isn't it? To understand how hardships always have an evil element. We're arguing that they come from God. <laughs> Broken relationships, lost jobs, illness, financial stress. You, you add whatever crook you want here. Uh, all have elements of evil, don't they? They wouldn't be crooks otherwise. They wouldn't be twists and turns. So how can we justly say they come from a hand of a holy God? Let me allow the Bible to speak here. Psalm 135.6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, and the seas and all deeps. If it happens, he does it. Amos 3.6, is a trumpet blown in a city, and just so you know what that means, they blew trumpets when they were being attacked by enemies. You know, get to your stations kind of thing. Is a trumpet blown in a city, and are the peoples not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap. All right, think of dice here. Roll the dice. But, is, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And you thought you were good at Yahtzee. No. <laughs> Proverbs 21, 1. 
The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Who does that? He sets up kings. He tears down kingdoms. God is the one who makes our way. But the question is, how does he do that? How does he do that and remain holy? How does God pull this off and remain God? Well, some hardships are sinless. Others are the direct result of sin. Those hardships that are sinless are things like Rachel's barrenness. It wasn't because she had sinned that she couldn't have kids. The blind man's blindness, the lame man's lameness, the leper's leprosy, trials like this come our way are not a direct result of sin. You didn't get a cavity. I, well, I suppose you could have gotten a cavity because of sin. That was a bad example. Use some other example. You didn't have that negative physical experience because of a sin necessarily. It's because you have a body. And these things deteriorate. So in 1 Samuel 2, 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. It's not because of your MBA. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. 1 Samuel 1, 5, but to Hannah, her husband gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Exodus 4, 11, Remember this argument that Moses was having with God. He, was, he didn't think he should go to speak to Pharaoh. And then the Lord said to Moses, Whom has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Who does all these things? The Lord. God <laughs> does these things. Now, I'm going to acknowledge right here at this point, this juncture, that we are not to, going to exhaust the challenging discussions that these kind of issues bring up. There are literally libraries of books written, written about this. And Boston, nor me this morning, intend to solve all these things. We're just giving you a glimpse of what Scripture says about them. <clears throat> so there are hardships that originate from sinless things. But then there are hardships that are direct result of sin, and we're more familiar with those, probably. Things like broken marriages, being fired from a job for embezzling, going to jail for murder. Boston writes that these kinds of crooked paths do not come from God in the same way that sinless trials come from God. And so, like I said, we're getting into mysterious territory here, and it's hard to understand, but we know that God can never sin or cause people to sin. The Bible simply says so in James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. We cannot lay the charge against God that he is evil. And so how Boston explains this conundrum is that God allows sinful choices and uses them to bring about hardship. 
He gives us enough rope, and he knows if we do, because of our sin nature, we will hang ourselves, right? He allows it to take place. And we see this repeated in Old Testament history. Let them go their way, he would say to prophets concerning Israel. They will hang themselves. And, of course, they did. We do. People do. By sin. And so God allows these things to take place by simply giving us leeway to our propensities. How could God allow the Holocaust? How horrible was that? By giving leeway to Hitler. That's how. And his evil heart. He allows people to go their own sinful way, but, and here's the important but, he intervenes to bring about his purposes. Joseph is a perfect example of this, isn't it? God so overruled the heinous sin of his brothers by selling him into slavery so as to save all their family from starvation. He allowed the sin of selling their own flesh and blood into slavery so that, and he just gave them leeway, and their sinful hearts took over, so that he could save all of them from starvation, not just to keep them from starving, but to produce a Messiah to save the people sitting in this room. God allowed Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery so that you will be in heaven one day. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Listen to how Joseph said it. So they had reconciled, Joseph and his brothers had reconciled, and I imagine that was an interesting conversation. But they had reconciled, and Joseph said this to them during the conversation, Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You intended to hurt me, but God intended to use it to save you from yourselves. So why does God do this stuff? And here's where, I don't think I'm going to preach again on this next week. I may, I don't know. Who knows what the Spirit's going to do in my heart over the next few days. But here's where you need to buy the book, but I'm going to give you just a, a, a taste. I want to whet your appetite here a bit. Why does God do this stuff? Why doesn't he deal with creation differently, deal with us differently? Why does he have to put us through all this hardship and difficulty? One, to test the authenticity of one's faith. Are you certain your faith is real and authentic? Are you certain? You know how you'll be certain? Going through it. That's how. Finding yourself on the other side of a massive trial, still loving Jesus. Of course, to test the authenticity of our faith is for us, not for him. He knows already, right? Whenever he tests your faith or tests anybody's faith in Scripture or otherwise, it's to reveal it to you, not to him. He already knows. Secondly, why does God do this the way he does? To remind true believers that earth is not our home. 
We're just passing through. I've noticed this as I've aged. Heaven looks better and better all the time. I'm way more anxious to get there than I was 20 years ago, say. I remember praying to ask God to not return for his church until I got married. Wanted to get married. Well, you know what? The longer I'm married, <laughs> I should have Sherry come finish that sentence. <laughs> and I love her dearly. Friends, this isn't our home, is it? No. We're just a passing through. Thirdly, to address some sin in our lives and correct it. Believe it or not, there is sin in your life that you're not aware of. Psalm 119, verse 67. Remember that psalm? Sun Valley Church. Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. It's amazing how that works, isn't it? To address some sin in our lives and correct it is why we see the crooks in the lot. Fourthly, to prevent us from sinning, to keep us from going down a certain path that would result in sinful harm. It's amazing how going through trials reduces the allure of temptation that we've been struggling with, isn't it? You ever notice that? When you're in significant pain, you're not all that excited to look online for new cars or whatever else might be your weakness. Because we're dealing with pain. No, honey, come look at this. No, no, no. Bring me some Excedrin, please. <clears throat> Fifth. To reveal some area in our lives that need to be addressed. Impatience, greed, selfishness. This is similar to the exposing of things. Fifth, or sixth rather. Now listen to this one. This is why, of course all these are why, but I think this particularly was in the mind of Solomon when he wrote this. Consider the work of God. Think about what he's doing in your life. He's doing this so that you can experience God at a new and deeper level that you would never go to unless you were in the condition or the plight that you were in. Unless you were experiencing the negative circumstances, the crook in the lot that you are currently or that you will be one day, you would never, ever go to that place with God. To experience His grace and mercy at a level that you couldn't have imagined now in your smooth sailing days. So hardships really do help us see ourselves as we are, needy, and help us to see God as He is in ways that wouldn't have been possible without the hardship. Let me wrap it up with these words from the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold and that perishes though it's tested by fire, so that the preciousness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, so that you'll be mature. So that you reflect the person of Jesus Christ. So that you'll be conformed to his image. This is what God's doing, friends. I hope that, that you've been encouraged this morning. That was my intent. To help you see your life as God sees it. To help you understand his love in you particularly. As we come now to the Lord's Supper, I think what we've just heard from Ecclesiastes 7 is a, a wonderful way to, to prepare your heart to take the elements that are in front of us uh, by faith, believing that, that God is ministering to your soul where you need to be ministered to uh, by the Holy Spirit through these elements. And so let me try to connect the dots for you from the elements to what you've just heard. How much do you believe in the sovereignty of God in your past and present experiences? These elements remind you to put all your trust and hope in God in all, for all things. If, if God's love for you takes care of your biggest concern, which is separation from him, if, if the sovereignty of God has brought you this far through the work of Christ represented in these elements, how much more is out there for you? Romans 8.32. If he has given us his son, how much more freely will he give us all things? How much do you trust in the sovereign goodness of God in your life? He brought you to himself. What about the rest? I want you to think about that. Do these elements speak to these things, oh, friend, they speak loud. I'm going to pray, and uh, I'm going to read first the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11. And when I'm praying, I'll ask the elders to come forward and uh, prepare to serve you. But I want to explain something here to you about the Lord's Supper. It is designed to accomplish what I just described, the encouragement of the Holy Spirit in your heart and life, to remind you of the goodness of our God and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ and his Father and the Holy Spirit. Um, but, but you need to not come up here flippantly, but you need to come. If, if your heart is in a flippant place, confess it as you come, all right? Many have, have said, well, I just don't feel I'm worthy of this. Well, you're not, which is the point. Come and receive the grace and mercy of God in the elements for your soul. Uh, don't stay away unless you don't know Jesus, unless you 
haven't embraced him personally. This is not some magic potion that's going to make your life better. It's not that at all. So if you don't know Jesus, stay put. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't heap up more sin. But if you know Jesus, even no matter what level of discouragement you have right now, come forward. This is the place to be, to receive encouragement. So you'll come, we'll serve you, by faith you'll receive it, go back to your seat, and then partake whenever you wish between now and the time you leave this room. Okay? Let me read these words for you. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that these elements are designed by you, the Father, and the Holy Spirit to accomplish your purposes in our lives. We ask that you would do these things for us. We ask that you would um, accomplish your purposes that we know you will do. You are in the heavens, you do all that you please. And so we just want to acknowledge that we are at your disposal, willingly, joyfully, in spite of our weakness, in spite of our uncertainty, in spite of our fears, we present ourselves to you at this time. Minister to us, we pray. In your name, amen.